So we're on Ephesians 4, because I remember I did read verses 20 to 21. Mm-hmm. And we didn't talk about it a lot, but I think it's pretty self-evident. So it simply made a nice conclusion to chapter 3. Daylene, would you be willing to read verses 1? Uh, this is a long passage. 1 to 6. I'll give you a short passage. My appeal to you is to provide yourselves worthy of being called Christians, even though what I'm calling you, telling you, has put me in jail. Be humble, patient, and gentle with each other, showing tolerance and love. Worship God in peace, stay united, and be guided by the Holy Spirit. Remember that there is only one body of Christ and only one Holy Spirit who gives us all the same hope. There is only one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. There is only one God and Father for us all, who is over all his people and in all his people. That's what makes us brothers and sisters. I'm curious. Is this a a paraphrase? Clear word. Clear word. (laughs) Okay. I'm surprised. Sorry, it makes more sense to my brain. Sure. It's... (laughs) It's, uh, I'm, I'm surprised given us the clear word that there aren't many more words added uh, <laughs> because clear word is known for that. But So I was kind of thinking might be message or living yeah, this, Bible. This is my favorite. I got this when um, the kids were little. I think when it first came out. He didn't do any violence to the text. I was just curious. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but a lot of people go, oh, you have the clear word. You know, <laughs> so. <laughs> any comments about this short passage? The only thing I picked up is in chapter 2, you were questioning if he was arrested. And in my Bible it said he was. And this says, because I, what I'm telling you has put me in jail. Although, in, in my text, it just says that I'm a, I'm a prisoner of the Lord, yeah. which okay. may or may not mean that he's actually yeah. in jail at that moment. My, actually, um, mine says prisoner in the Lord. Mm-hmm. And that can mean, yes, I'm a prisoner, and I'm in the Lord. Uh, so, it is possible... That he is in jail. We know that Philippians was written from prison. Mine's a prisoner for the Lord. Yeah, see, the Greek can be all those ways. And her Bible's right because it's an SDA Bible. <laughs> so is that one? <laughs> but the, the translation is not SDA in it. The Holy Spirit is an SDA? No, I'm saying that your translation in the Bible... Oh, it, it, what I meant was the committee did the translation, not not Andrews University. I guess that goes back to when I was 12 and I first discovered that the Bible was not written in King James or English. So that's all we had was the King James Version, practically. Mm-hmm. But other versions didn't matter at that time. Well, that's that's what Paul wrote. And and <laughs> so I, to me, the real Bible was the Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic. After I read that the Bible wasn't translated or wasn't originated in English. So anything else? I love the string of words with all humility and gentleness with patience, bearing with one another in love. 
making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Yeah, that's the scripture that we need to, to start college assembly at the moment, wouldn't it be? Yes. It seems like uh, when I compared this particular part of Ephesians with the message in Revelation, I feel like they did do these things in many aspects except for one. Do you want me to read and compare them? Sure. Oh, we've read this, I'll read this. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. So it sounds like this is about maintaining the unity of the body, um, and here they've endured hardships, they've persevered, they've tested people and found them false. Um, like they've done all these things to to strive, but in the end they did it, but they lost that first love that they have, which can happen in any relationship, right? Mm-hmm. You can lose that first love, that freshness, that, you know... Passion. Yes. Yes, so they were operating, they were doing all these things, and it was good. So I feel like they did live up to this in many ways, except for, like you said, that first passionate. I wonder if in the process of finding false teachings and and weighing that out, if they kept their humility and gentleness, that's mentioned here as well. Because so often when we get in a mode of making sure we have a pure faith, that's where we lose our love is because we go after Standard the heretics. Yeah. If, if, if we get our eyes off of Christ and we get our eyes on the false teachings and on the, the bad behaviors and things like that, it's, it's just very easy to trip up over this losing our first love. Uh, because our love comes from God. It doesn't come from ourselves. So um, it's it would be interesting. I, I'm quite sure Ephesians was written before Revelation. Because we know that John wrote Revelation probably in the 90s. And Paul didn't live to see the 90s. But Ephesians, of course, as you know, is not written necessarily for the Ephesians. It was written for all the churches and it was circulated. And the, they think that the last church to get the letter gave it its title, Ephesians. Because the, the, these were different towns in Asia Minor. So then when would have the salutation at the beginning have been added in? Because it says Paul to the saints who are in Ephesus. So it sounds like it was specifically to them. Okay, I have, a, I have a footnote. Other ancient authorities lack in Ephesus. 
So this was added later, according to the textual critical evidence, because the late, the oldest manuscripts don't have in Ephesus. It's the later manuscripts that have that. And that's that's what led to this belief that he wrote it as a generic letter, and that it ended up in Ephesus, and so that gave it its name. The Adventist one doesn't want to admit that. Oh, really? Well, just as the introduction following the ancient pattern lists the sender, Paul, and the receivers, the holy people or saints, Paul's usual name for church members, and offers a profound greeting. It doesn't say it lacks Ephesus. Well, some people who are very ver- yeah, close to verbal yes, inspiration, in practice, they, ah, yes. um, they, they really want to deny the textual evidence. Mm-hmm. And they think you're a heretic if you dare to point out the textual evidence. I ran into that when I, shortly after I came here and I was working in the records office. Word got out that I was working on a doctorate in Old Testament in the ancient Near East. And so a student came up from the theology department and berated Larry Richards, who was teaching down here, for teaching textual criticism. He ruins the Bible, and da, da, da. <laughs> and I couldn't persuade him otherwise. And so the next thing I know, they started depriving Larry Richards of his classes, because apparently the student was very convincing. Or had a powerful, powerful parent. And no, he it wouldn't have been his parent. It would have been the student. And so they they started eliminating his classes. I ended up with one of them, Story of the English Bible, which was Ancestry of the English Bible. Then you've been teaching that a long time, then. Yeah, <laughs> because I, I contract taught at first. Anyway, he he That's finally had to leave. He was kind of just squeezed out of the department, and he went to Andrews. <laughs> <laughs> and was able to do his textual critical uh, stuff there. And he wrote the best guide our church has for learning Greek. Like, it's used a lot. And he had a wonderful... I sat in his Greek class there. He's a wonderful man. Yeah, really he was. He, he passed away five or seven then. years ago. Yeah, I was sad about that. I really yeah. like him. He's not only Scott. And I was I was pastor. horrified when I realized that's what had happened. I didn't realize it until he was gone. That that's, that's what, what had happened. happened. And I was like, I would never have accepted that class. But, you know, they probably would have changed the major. At that time, it was a theology major class. They probably would have changed the major and eliminated the class if I hadn't taught it. I don't know. Do you think it was just all sensitivity because of other theological happenings? Because it wasn't It could be, it could be just, we don't want anybody causing problems for us. It could have been that, very definitely. Mm. But anyway, it's amazing what can happen. So, we don't know who he sent the letter to first. Oh no, it is here. I would be surprised if it wasn't. But. It's just in this extra tiny, tiny writing. Yeah. It's not there. Well, that's the way it is here. And this is a study Bible. so <laughs> This is an Oxford annotated study Bible. It has to be the other version. Yeah. It's interesting because mine will we'll often have something to that effect where it will um, indicate as far as if there's differences between the received text or the 
Vaticanus or Sinaiticus texts, but it, on this one it doesn't say anything. In your, your version is which one? This is, it's, it's not a study Bible, but it's a, you know, it's a New King James. Okay, depending on which kind you, oh, it, but it does have other notes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, um, depending on the perception about textual criticism and how important it is or whether it is a thing, yep. you're going to have differences. Yeah, so not this, I guess maybe this is off on the side, but the, the one thing that kind of makes me wonder as far as even though <clears throat> the earliest copies that we have that uh, go into becoming received texts are newer than than the Sinaiticus or Vaticanus manuscripts, we do have excerpts of letters that predate the, either of the yeah. those two. And often when they quote scripture it actually They're quoting the quoting and it and it matches up with the received. Yeah. Uh, so it's not uh, It is clear. sexual criticism is it used to be we had one method of doing textual criticism and that was by Westcott and Hort and then it became increasingly eclectic as the evidence rolled in and we realized you know it's not so straightforward and easy to tell um, so I think you know if we had you know the fact that it was you know a much wetter climate you know in, in Europe and, and so on that that has a lot to do with why we don't have as many oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. things. And if the, we, it, only the vellum and the parchment could mm-hmm. survive, right. not the papyrus. Uh, of course, as time went on, they used more and more of the vellum and the parchment. But in Paul's day, they were still using papyrus, I'm pretty sure. When we look at verses 5 and 6, uh, you know, I challenge my students to think when God looks at us, when he looks at all of his Christ followers, Christian people, does he see us in all these different denominations? Or does he look at us in a unity and we've created a disunity? Well, certainly in Paul's day, there was one body. And for many centuries after Paul's day, there was one body. We know that when the one body becomes sick, <laughs> parts of that body break off to try to get healthy, and that's what happens during the Reformation. So I don't, I don't know how to answer that question. I'll have to admit, if I were one of your students, I'd be like, uh, I don't know. <laughs> what are you thinking, Jean? <laughs> <laughs> I think God is not tied to boundaries and walls and fences. He seems to go out of his way to break them down every... He seems to break, yeah, to break them down, but his, nonetheless, not can we say that everyone who calls themselves a Christian is really a Christian? And, and that's, I think, where, where my, my struggle is. Uh, so does God have a universal church? And I'm hopefully using that term in its most primitive sense. But does he have a universal church comprised of all the people he can, he can call his followers? And we don't know who that is, so we can treat everybody as though they are his followers. It's called the Invisible Church in Theology. Yeah, I know. 
So if that's the case, I, I think about, I, I just finished teaching the class uh, Christian Ethics and Society, and I've discovered that it seems to be really well liked by our non-Adventist community and students who aren't in the Adventist church. So I had a Catholic, and I had, I think, two Catholics in the, and this is a, only a class of 12 students. So I had two Catholics, and I had a Baptist, and I guess the rest were Adventists. No, I had one who wasn't anything. So a third of the class, right off the bat. So a third of the class was not Adventist. And I, I was unabashed about talking about Adventist and social issues, and I even spilled some of our negativity, like how we treated blacks in, in uh, 1950s, mm-hmm. when they had to eat in a separate place away from the cafeteria in the general conference. And I talked about the woman who, uh, the African-American woman who went to Washington Adventist Hospital and was denied entrance. She could not be treated there because she was black. And she died. That's shocking. Yeah. These are some of the horror stories in the Adventist church. So I I, I didn't try to protect us. I got some interesting comments in their portfolio, they had to write a mission statement and some other statements. And they revealed openly what denomination they were. And they said that it was interesting to be in this class. And they felt, they indicated they kind of felt at home on campus because they didn't feel ostracized because they were Adventists. Which I was grateful that that was their experience here and not something else. And what was really interesting is that some of the students who were in Adventist chose ADRA to report on. And I mentioned it in class, you know, we talked about it a little bit in class when we were talking about global community development. And uh, they picked up on it, found their website, did their research. And I thought, well, that's really cool. (coughs) They were willing to pick an Adventist thing. Quite a few of them did that. So those boundaries, God God does not pay attention to the boundaries. He pays attention to the heart of each individual. That's what's important, isn't it? Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's the answer you were looking for. Oh, no, I just wanted you to think about it. Yeah. I don't you know, know what I think. Anything else? I think we're ready maybe to move on. Well, here's our, our statement. One... One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all, through all, and in all. So, that's a statement. Maybe an answer. Philip, would you read? I'm going to give you a long... Okay. Read verses 7 to 16. Okay. But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captive, he led captivity captive, and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what is it but that he is also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave some and he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. 
for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come into the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the statute of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and the cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love, may grow up into him all things, which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body into the edifying of itself in love. This, this I say therefore, and testify in the Lord, that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness okay. of their heart. Okay. We went a little bit beyond that. That's oh, okay. Oh, sorry. I went to 16. I was, I was on a roll. <laughs> That's all right. Oh. I'd like to point out something. Um, is talking about maturity. Paul is really strong on the unity and maturity of the body of Christ being built upon spiritual gifts. So my first question is, why is he so concerned about spiritual gifts in terms of maturity? Why does does he tie that together so strongly? Well, it has to do with practical Christian living and functioning as a body and Mm -hmm. becoming a powerful movement that can do the work Mm -hmm. of Christ in the world. It's Mm -hmm. only as we find our little piece of the puzzle or whatever it is that we can truly as a group do so much more than we could individually yeah um, it seems to me that if we are recognizing our own spiritual gift and recognizing the spiritual gifts in other people we're less likely to be exclusive we're more likely to be inclusive and, and allow the spirit to do his work among us and not try to take control and authority over the church. Yeah, maybe to be thankful too. I know when I was part of a church in Australia, it was the most exciting local church I've ever been in. And they didn't have a nominating committee, rather they had someone who helped people discover their gifts. They had regular classes, you discover your gifts, and then you say what area you want to serve in. And that's how they did. And I said, if we don't have anyone for it, then that will stay empty. We're not going to push people into doing things. They get burned out, frustrated, or it's stressful, and they don't end up loving church. And when everyone's functioning where they're supposed to be, then you have a happy congregation and people who are focused on their gifts, and you can celebrate and love each other for your differences rather than it being a source of antagonism and fighting. And then people are more likely to serve better and uh, more intentionally where they belong. Calumet said it was all volunteer. There was no nominating committee. Wow. And every department was filled because people volunteered where they wanted to. Mm-hmm. Instead of being beat over the back of the head with guilt for not saying yes to some place where they asked you to serve at. I think too it w- it gets 
it opens up the dynamics of the church because if people are if they feel strongly about something then maybe they would start a ministry group or an area that other people don't necessarily feel the need for something so it it adds something that isn't um, maybe just the normal routine stuff mm-hmm. I wonder well there's two things that kind of came to mind in this one is you're talking about how Paul that this is a real theme of his as far as the spiritual gifts um, and I wonder how much of that is a response to the fact that at least from you know, reading through it seems that on a regular basis his position was questioned as to you know who are you who do you think you are how come you think you should be doing all this and that and so that he's trying to lay a framework of saying okay these are the spiritual gifts this is how things work together and that's how come my place is here and your place is there and you know this and that's how this all works together i i wonder if that plays anything into that it could Um, yeah it certainly probably is in the back of paul's mind even if he doesn't expressly state it. And the other thing I wonder, as far as just differentiating between the fruits of the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit, and I, I kind of wonder sometimes we get really kind of caught up in the in the gift of the Spirit and and some denominations more than others, but even so... Um, but I, I, it almost seems to be sometimes to the exclusion of recognizing that the that perhaps the fruit of the spirit should be primary to even uh, the ex- exercising of of the gift that. Um, well, he he draws yeah he draws that together here. We must no longer be children tossed to and fro and so on, but speaking the truth in love, verse fifteen. Mm-hmm. We must grow up in every way to him who is the head. And that parallels something we maybe glided over a little bit in 1 Corinthians uh, 13. We call 1 Corinthians 13 the love chapter, but in reality it's the maturity chapter, because that's where Paul ends. Paul is talking about one spiritual gift that is becoming the most important gift of choice, and if you have this gift, you'll really have the Spirit. And that's the speaking in tongues. Um, and if you look at um, if you look at verse twelve, he he talks about the spiritual gifts, and he he's laying the framework because in chapter fourteen he talks about speaking in tongues, and pleads pleads for it not to be seen as the end all gift that everybody should have. So he's he's talks about love, and then he points out that prophecies will come to an end. And for knowledge it will cease. And these are all spiritual gifts. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child, but when I became an adult, I put away end to childish ways. For now we will see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. Now I know in only in part, then I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. So he, he does it there, and then he does it again here in uh, Ephesians 4. This this thing that the spiritual gifts are supposed to grow us up into Christ, and they do that through love. So if you have a church with all the spiritual gifts that it needs, 
That is not enough. There has to be love and truth. So I, I think you're right that the the spiritual fruit is supposed to be uh, preeminent over the spiritual gifts. It's supposed to be what helps those spiritual gifts to actually do their work. For us to do our work is if we have love for one another. Otherwise, you have a lot of nuts and bolts and mechanics going on, but you don't have what holds that body together. You could look at it, too, as if it's a gift, it's given to everyone, but unless we do something with it to show that we're actually doing something with the fruits, then it hasn't really changed There's a flip side of that same yeah. coin, isn't there? Which, actually, your point just reminded me that there's a uh, uh, sermon I was listening to the other day that uh, made the point of how that, as far as the, the doing portion uh, being so important and that, you know, too often we think of Christianity as being a, a, a system of beliefs, which it is, except that Jesus typically called people to follow him, which was an, an action to, to actually do, as opposed to even even people who didn't really believe him yet. Or, or believe in him, or really didn't understand who he was, he still called them to follow him, and it wasn't until years later that they figured out how everything fit together. But it, that it was the, the, the doing, and that, um, that you know, he was just saying that he prefers the idea of being a, a, a Christ follower or a Jesus follower as opposed to being a Christian. Because a Christian is something that can, you know, yes, I, I can tick all the boxes, I believe this X, Y, and Z, but it can still just live in this little compartment that doesn't affect the rest of your life, yeah. uh, as opposed to actually, if we're actually going to follow the example of Jesus and live the way that he did, that can't help but affect every aspect of your yeah. life and, and your relationships with people in the, in the world. Okay. Katrina, would you read verses 17 to 24, please? So I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed." That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in Him according, in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness." Any thoughts or comments? One other thing I, I teach on and I teach letters of Paul's is sexuality in the Greco-Roman world. And most students think, oh, today is really liberal, much more open sexually, much more open. And then I describe sexuality in the Greco-Roman world and half of them sitting there. And <laughs> 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 it really helps to understand mm-hmm passages like this yeah. because I mean 
the things that they considered normal, I mean, we just would really... And people do practice those things today, but but the level of which it was just normal yeah. for them. Yeah, we so we don't accept it. I mean, prostitution is still wrong, and and pederasty, pederasty, and and pedophilia, and just mu- mu- multiple partners, the sex with anyone, sex with your right. slaves, male or female. You know, yeah. it just didn't matter. That was considered normal yeah. sexual activity. Yeah. For a, for a um, Roman Greek male, um, so he's really he talks a lot about sexuality in his letters, and he's always calling them away from that yeah. to purity, because visiting temple prostitutes was part of their daily life. I like verse thirty twenty three, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and that to me corresponds to Romans 12 verse 1 I appeal to you therefore brothers and sisters by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God which is your logikos worship <laughs> sorry that's the Greek logikos where we get logic uh, reasonable worship spiritual worship it's translated all kinds of ways but to me, it's it's intended to be rational. It's reasonable. It's, it's built on, on the mind. Um, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds, so that you may discern what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable. I had a friend come to my, see me one day when I was at work, and this is before I was in this department, and she was kind of complaining she about the testimonies and how difficult they were and how hard they were on things. And she brought up masturbation as an example, because Ellen White. There's there's a testimony in one of the volumes, testimony volumes that deals with masturbation in a very negative way. And I said, well, you know, I read that chapter, and it struck me that what she was trying to say overall is that God gave us a brain that was to be preeminent over everything in the body. And we were to think with our brain and act with our, with our mental faculties governing us and not with the lower part of the body. <laughs> that shouldn't be what's dominant. And, and she started laughing and she said, you know, that does make sense, <laughs> that that's what she was talking about. And I think that's why Paul says that you know, it takes to, to conquer when you're addicted to sex, which I think is what's happened in, in Roman society and in our world to some degree. When you're addicted to sex, there has to be a rewiring of the brain. Because what sex does with, with the, and I'm not a, a medical person, so David, help me out. But what sex does to, to burn the things that you see, the images and all of that in the brain. Uh, it actually uh, changes the brain, the way it functions. Well, certainly the, the pathways, that as, as, as you repeatedly, either with, um, it can be with beliefs, it can be with actions, or whatever, the pathways that get used get strengthened, they get built, and they get turned from a two-way or a little one-way alley into a two-way to a four-way to a 
10-lane superhighway as you use it more and more, and the, the pathways that aren't used end up getting pruned away uh, and, mm-hmm. and clipped. But um, but the, they're finding that the brain is actually very plastic in that right. it's able to, to, just because that's a 10-lane highway now doesn't mean it has to stay that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that um, that they've done studies, and in particular in... Um, Several times I've heard uh, a gentleman who, uh, Mark Laser, who kind of specializes in this this area, uh, who uh, speaks about in his own experience and when they've done, you know, PET scans and various things on his brain, comparing how he handles things and and, and as opposed to someone who has not been careful about um, whether it be uh, pornography or mm-hmm. you know, various mm-hmm. things that. Um, that they can show that the brain is handling things very differently, and as far as the parts of the brain that become active. And well, I, I actually read a book um, on as, as a story about a man who he grew up in a mission field and he was very lonely when he came back to the states with his parents, mm-hmm. and he ended up in a college dormitory and he could he couldn't relate to other people because he was so culturally. Uh, climbed to where he had been and he's got into pornography and he got married and he began spending so much time with pornography um, that he practically almost lost his family and his wife finally figured out what was going on and she tried to get him help and what they did at Pascan I think it was of his brain and he had lost tremendous functioning now, that doesn't mean it couldn't be regained, but as long as he was doing pornography, he was going to lose that functioning. Um, and so this transfer, for the renewing of the mind being transformed, conformity is really what the world does. It wants you to conform, to be compliant, to, to just follow the crowd. But spirituality is being transformed by the renewing of our minds. And I, I see that theme here as well in Ephesians and the new self. Well, our time is up. So let's pray. Dear God, we ask that we will be able to live out the messages we've read today in our minds, that we will be spirit driven, that we will be renewed by the spirit in our minds and be transformed in our lives. Bless us and guide us through your spirit and help us to be have the unity we need here on this campus, in this place, and in our church. In Jesus' name, amen.